Welcome to our next episode of Significant Watches, a podcast roundtable featuring the four horological homies. Today, we're joined by a special guest, J.N. Shapiro, a.k.a. Joshua N. Shapiro, hailing from Los Angeles. Uh, and today, it's Tony Trena. Say hi, Tony. Hey, everyone. Uh, great to be on, and thank you so much, Josh, for, for joining us. And uh, me, Eric Wynn, joining Gabe is on a 10-day trip with his family, and uh, Charlie uh, has been recovering from a bad bout of food poisoning. So uh, it's just Tony and me today carrying the carrying the torch and carrying the flag for our fallen comrades. Uh, Josh, we wanted... You're oh, basically only our third guest uh, since we started wow. watches over two years ago. And so great to be here. <laughs> we, An exclusive club. Congrats. <laughs> so we wanted to talk to you a little bit about your journey, uh, who you are, etc. So I guess in a brief introduction, tell us about who you are, Josh Shapiro. Uh. Thank you, Eric, and thank you, Tony. Good to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, my journey, in a nutshell, is uh, watches just started off as a fun hobby, and uh, I really just kept at it and kept growing it. And you know, I started taking courses, distance learning courses, with the British Horological Institute around 2012, and. I uh, kept learning, kept growing, discovered George Daniels and his watchmaking book, then discovered Guilloche, uh, and then kind of plotted this idea that if I really wanted to make a complete watch by scratch, I needed to start somewhere. And I started with watch dials and pursued that as much as I possibly could and started making dials for other people like David Walter, and then eventually launched my Infinity series, which the big focus was on the dial, and then was able to grow the team. And we brought in case making, was able to grow the team and completed the trifecta and uh, started manufacturing our own movements as well. And that's pretty special. We'll we'll go back to the beginning in a second. But Josh has now a second series of watches under his uh, moniker, J.N. Shapiro. The first was the Infinity series and the second, which was introduced in May last year, is the Resurgence the first fully made in the United States of America watch, uh, including an in-house movement since 1969. Uh, and we wanted to talk to you, you know, about how we'll start actually with the resurgence and kind of work our way back. Uh, tell us about how long that process took to come up with your own in-house movement. You've got a few different bridge options, etc., and your team how how long did that process take yeah I, I i hatched the idea first i think back in the beginning of 2019 i started really thinking how can i make an in-house watch and um originally i wanted to use uh an american caliber and base the watch off of that uh, so I was going to do it off of uh, a Hamilton 730 movement and keep some aspects of the train, some of the components, and remake everything else. Uh, and 
the, the idea kept developing and I didn't really like the compromises I need to make by using based on another caliber. And so we made a complete prototype that way, but I, um, I threw the entire idea away. And in May of 2022, we started from scratch, building a complete movement from the ground up. And uh, it took us about a year to make the first uh, show prototype that we launched with. And then um, another seven, eight months of refinements after that. And so now we're finally in production for it, and it it feels pretty amazing. It's been an incredible journey. A lot of hard work, blood, sweat, tears, crying, joy, all the emotions. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, I wanted to ask you about where you're from. You know, I think we've read a lot of uh, articles about Josh Shapiro, but kind of what's your early story and going back to the beginning? So, uh, way, way back, way back in the the late eighties and early nineties, uh, in the the stone age, um, I was uh, blessed enough to grow up with a really incredible grandfather who was a a jack of all trades. Uh, he was a welder on the Manhattan project, uh, started his own machine shop and, uh, he was in an unincorporated area of Los Angeles. And, uh, he founded the city that his business was in and then was mayor for many years and just a really kind, giving person interested in everything, uh, South Almani in California. It's a little city population around 30,000. Uh, and, uh, you know, growing up as a kid, I would do all sorts of cool projects with him, smelting gold making jewelry from turquoise, just really cool projects, really incredible person. Uh, I think that had a big impression on me. Uh, I really liked working with metal from an early age and also a fascination with history. So my first career was in history, teaching education, really in love with history. And then around the time I got married, uh, you know, like I really missed all those things, projects I had done with my grandfather and Mix that with uh, a love of history and, and watchmaking is the was the perfect thing for me. A mix of history and metal and uh, just an endless rabbit hole. Uh, so that's sort of the, the 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 deeper early background. I just feel really lucky that I was exposed to him and had that great influence. Uh, tell it. Did you ever talk to him about his time on the Manhattan Project as a welder? Yeah, it was really boring because uh, he had no idea what he was working on. Uh, <laughs> if you could believe it, it. no, he, he didn't probably, know anything. Did Zero. he know it was for the government or anything? I, I think he just knew it was some sort of government work. No idea what he was doing until in 1946 he received a like a commendation in the mail. Uh, <laughs> said thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still have that? Yeah, it's hanging up. Uh, uh, in his in his house, he's passed away in 1998. But he's got this incredible wall that his children put up of all uh, all of his pictures with important people and awards and stuff. He just kept it all in a, a box in his closet. He was a very humble guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Can you text me a photo of that after the podcast? I'd love to see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll have to go. I've, I don't think I've ever taken a picture of it. Um, yeah. So cool. And yeah. 
So he he kind of founded this machine shop. Your father continued it, and you're kind of the third generation. Yeah, and it it actually uh, the sandblasting aspect of the business really took off. Um, uh, so like uh, growing up, like the machine shop was like no one was using it, and the main business was sandblasting. Uh, yeah. So my dad has lots of sandblaster jokes. Like, uh, my dad's a, an SOB and I'm an SOB son of a blaster. Um, <laughs> That's <yeah>. great. <laughs> yeah. And you, uh, then went to college. Uh, where did you go to college? Uh, I went to UCLA. Um, and I, uh, I studied history. Yep. Yeah. When I focused. You... Uh, go, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, when did you graduate? Sorry. 2008. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And what, sorry, what was your focus? Um, I did a lot of civil war, Asian history. Um, and then my master's was really cool. I focused on a guy named Mo Berg. who's one of the most fascinating human beings, uh, ever. Um, so that was a, a really cool master's. This guy was, a. Uh, um, he was, a. Uh, uh, at Princeton and was like a uh, fluent in 10 different languages and Princeton offered him to do their doctoral program, be a professor there. But instead he went and played uh, baseball for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, and had a long career. And then um, when his career ended, the uh, world war two was starting up. Um, and he was, uh, he was hired to spy on the uh, German atomic bomb project. Um, and since he was fluent in so many languages and brilliant, uh, he went through Italy and then, uh, through France and into Switzerland, uh, getting as much intelligence as he could on the atomic bomb project. Super fascinating guy. That's yeah. awesome. So that was your thesis. Yeah. 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 That's this is all non-watch stuff. Nobody Lifetime cares. Ago. Well, yeah. <laughs> we got to we got to turn that into a book and all your free time and then a movie. <laughs> right. It's it's been done. Paul Rudd already uh the catcher was a spy. I'm too late. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's great. Um then you spent some time in Israel after that, correct? Yeah. Um I spent a year in Israel while I was in college and then uh another year uh, after I got, uh, after I graduated and before I got married. Yeah. So I, about two years total in Israel, really incredible experience. Everyone should go. That's amazing. And it's kind of interesting because you're known to be orthodox and very observant, but you grew up in a household that was not quite as orthodox, correct? No, not, not religious at all. Not religious at all. No. That's so zero zip. Yeah. What kind of led to your conversion, if you will, to orthodoxy? <laughs> uh, I guess um, just the pursuit of, of deeper meaning um, mixed with like a wonderful heritage and traditions and uh, family values. And so it was a, a lot of different things, a lot of different things, history and uh, but really like a a pursuit of, of deep meaning, um, like really focusing on what's important in life. 
it's very easy to, especially in Los Angeles, to get caught up in the the rat race. Um, and m- the pursuit of money is uh, the deepest meaning. Um, and fame, and fame, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That too. Yeah, we're, we're Hollywood here. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> so you see a lot of people chasing after things that aren't really important, and it really puts things into perspective, like what really matters. That's great, and you ha- are blessed with a few kids now. Uh, how many kids do you have? Four. Last time I counted. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's yeah. awesome. Well, it's good. Now we got to know Josh Shapiro, the man, a little bit, and let's talk about your kind of horological journey from historian at UCLA to uh, watchmaker, reviving the American watchmaking industry. Uh, single-handedly with a great team around you. Uh, tell, tell us about uh, your first mechanical watches. Oh, wow. Uh, ones I collected or ones I worked on? Yeah. No, no. Uh, collected, yeah. Because that's kind of where it started. Uh, but it's it's super embarrassing if I tell you the first watches I, I bought. No, so I when I got married, I walked into Feldmar, and there's a big, huge poster of a Chrono Swiss Opus. It's a skeletonized uh, Valjoux seven seven fifty, and I never really paid attention to watches ever before, but I was immediately enthralled being able to see the inner workings of the watch. Uh, so then I did what everyone does uh, when they first discover watches. I went and bought a Fossil and an Invicta. Um, <laughs> that's great from yeah. Invicta to the resurgence it's a good arc <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so i bought those uh the fossil was pretty cool the invicta was hideous it was like some 47 <laughs> millimeter gold plated uh you know chinese eta 6498 clone the most hideous watch you could possibly imagine um do you, do you still have both of those no, God, no, no, no. In fact, I'm risking losing all my customers uh, by even talking about this. Yeah, uh, for sure, for sure. Uh, but, you know, when I saw those, then I bought some um, Unitas 6498s, some vintage ones, um, and started trying skeletonizing myself. Um, and that was a really important moment because... Uh, it was when I realized I didn't want to just collect these things. I wanted to really get my hands in it. Um, and I had and super crude tools and no idea what I was doing. What, what year was this around? This was, um, uh, 2011 in the winter of 2011. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. I and, feel like, um, I feel like ahead, that kind of 2000, eight to 2011 12 time frame was just so interesting so many people came into watches including myself i began writing for hodinkee in 2010 oh wow yeah and, uh, began collecting around that time like it, it's just hodinkee came out in 2008 and that's how i first even got interested in mechanical watches really after i had inherited my grandfather's hamilton so it's very oh, just cool. very interesting that uh we both came into it around the same time. What Hamilton? It, it's called the Neil. It's a very simple, oh, like, yeah, 30, yeah. 30 millimeter 
with kind of Americanized brigade numerals. It was a gift mm-hmm. from my grandfather to my my grandmother to my grandfather for their wedding in 1947. Oh, uh, uh, that's great. That you have to show that to me sometime. Yeah, I will. It was my first mechanical watch, and that, that really sparked the, the fire. So it's cool. Yeah. Uh, so Is that- skeletonization still something you're sort of uh- – you're interested in from a, from a craftsmanship perspective, Jeff? You know, like I, I kind of did a complete 180. Like I, I did like the biggest 180 of all time. Like I went from thinking, why would anyone ever want a dial on a watch? Cause then you hide the mechanism and the mechanism is the coolest thing. And then just uh, uh, a flip switched in my brain when I discovered guilloche and <laughs> My entire career was staked on making dials, literally. So I went from hating them to loving them. Um, and, uh, you know, I skeletization still interests me, but I guess, you know, my tastes have changed and evolved. And then I got into, it was skeletonization, then anglage, uh, then to guilloche. Um so recently, uh, my watchmakers went to Switzerland and they got to meet with Philip Dufour. I was really uh, jealous that they got to meet with him. I didn't, but they showed him the watch, and it was like a it was a, it was a big moment because he's one of the people I really admired when I was starting out. So that was neat. Yeah, yeah tell us tell us about uh, your team a little bit. We'll kind of jump around, but. Uh, you have an amazing team. We'll talk about your workshop as well uh, in Torrance, but tell us about your team. Yeah, so I have uh, three watchmakers, Spencer Torak, uh, Brian Choi, Michael Rose. Uh, all went to watchmaking school, super talented guys. The guys that didn't want to uh, go and um, work for the Crown or work for Swatch, uh, they actually wanted to make things and progress in their skills. Um, And then I have two wonderful machinists, both trained machinists, and they operate our CNC machines. Uh, Daniel Gonzalez, who is doing research in a university in uh, South Carolina, and Brian Furutani, who is working for Honda for 16 years, uh, and then came over to us. And then... uh, I have a, a great intern right now who's an engineering student at uh, UCLA getting his master's there, William, and uh, Ali, who does our office managing, and myself, and it's a, it's a great team, really passionate, passionate people. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. So you were interested in skeletonization, and then what were kind of the next steps? You kind of professionally at that time, you were then working for a high school and became principal. Uh, yeah. So tell yeah. us about the personal and the, the hobby side, if you will. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a really like until, um, until 2015, I was like completely entrenched in my career. You know, I'd been a teacher and I got promoted to being a principal of the general studies program. Uh, and watchmaking was just a complete hobby. But I was like, I was buying and selling pocket watches. I was buying and selling vintage watches. I was continuing to learn. I took this distance learning course with the British Horological Institute. It was like a one-year course. Go through and you 
learn the, the basics of watchmaking, working with manual and automatic movements, lathe skills. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And I started making like skeleton watches for like friends and family, people that took pity on me. Um, and uh, it was just fun. Uh, but then, then when I put my first real serious investment into an engine turning machine, that's when I started thinking I could really do this. Uh, so I met a man named David Lindau, uh, who now runs the Plumier, which is this, which teaches ornamental turning and engine turning. Great man. He sold me my first machine. Um, Where is he based? He is based. I, I think they were in New York. They just moved uh, into Pennsylvania. He himself lives in uh, northern Pennsylvania. Uh, he makes. He's the head of uh, AWCI. He makes clocks. He makes rose engine machines. He runs this organization. Incredible person. I wouldn't be where I am today without his help. Great man. And, and when was, when did he buy that machine? Uh, I bought the machine in 2014. Um, and then in 2015, David Lindau introduced me to David Walter. And David Walter is an incredible clockmaker, watchmaker, one of the best clockmakers in the world, incredible human being. And uh, David Walter uh, was looking to have an engine turn dial made uh, for his uh, for his wristwatches. And uh, I was starting to get good enough at that point where I was doing professional level work. And so he, he was my first person to hire me to do a, a, a real job. Uh, and we, I think we made like six or seven dials uh, for his watches. And I made some clock dials. Um, and uh, they came out really beautiful. And that's, that was the moment where I realized, hey, I could really do this and started thinking about putting out my own watch. When, when did you make those dials? 2015, 2016. Um, yeah. And where are they today? Are they in some private collections or? Yeah, they're all in private collections. Yeah. Do you it think it's called the Presidio, ever... David Walter Presidio? Have any come up on the secondary market? I don't think so. Yeah, maybe one so. day it'll be like a very valuable watch at auction one day with the yeah. Hero dial. That's cool. right. Yeah. Just my name secretly about? engraved on the back. <laughs> That's great. Can you just talk a little bit about how difficult and expensive it is to get sort of the proper uh, machinery and lathes to do <laughs> this type of work? Yeah, I, I mean, like, it, it's really expensive. Like, uh, you know, every time I, I buy a watch these days, I end up keeping it not very long and then end up buying more machines. Like um, I probably have $3 million in equipment, something like that. Um, like Rose engine machines, engine turning machines can anywhere be from anywhere from like 10 to $50,000. Um, you know, we have seven or eight manual lathes and those can be anywhere from five to 15,000. And then, Lots of other support machinery, tools, accessories, um, our measuring equipment. You know, like a, a good measuring machine is sixty, seventy thousand dollars. 
and then our CNC machines, you know, can range anywhere from 50,000 to a million. Um, so, uh, you know, to really make a watch from scratch, everything in your own workshop, uh, and not subcontract stuff out, um, is extremely expensive and it's not something that can be done overnight. And even I get asked all the time, you know, people want to bring back American watchmaking right this second. It's like, how much money will it cost? And it's, it's not even a money thing. Like, even if you had a hundred million dollars, there's the labor aspect of it. Like you need people to be able to run these machines and have the expertise. Um, yeah. So it's, it's slow and steady, slow and steady. That's the, uh, that's the, the answer there. Yeah. It's pretty funny because I was on a panel at the Dubai watch week horology forum in oh, New yeah. York, September, 2022. And it was about American watchmaking and everyone was kind of like, wouldn't it be great if there was a made fully made in America watch again? And yeah. all the <laughs> was on the panel. He has his own watch brand, which is cool. And, um, Kara uh, Barrett as well. So we were just talking and I was like, yeah, maybe in the next decade. And then basically less than nine months later, you came out with a, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty, pretty cool and exciting. I was like, what, how is that possible? Yeah. Uh, so uh, you went obviously from, from making dials to others. You did a few other uh, dial projects. Uh to then introducing your first watch, the Infinity Series. When was that? That was June 1st, 2018. Um, and um, I bought in the case, uh, these really nice gold cases from Germany, and then we were using a wonderful movement uh, from Earnwork Dresden, which is a part of Langenhain. Uh, wonderful movements. It was the best manual line movement I could find on the market. Um, and, uh, and then we made the dial in the hands. And it was a multi-component uh, dial, extremely complex, classic in design. And then I invented a new pattern called the Infinity Weave, which was a basket weave within a basket weave. And that was sort of my contribution to the the engine-turning guilloche world, trying to do something new, extremely challenging. Um and it was kind of meant for this new age of people liking to loop and macro photography because you can't appreciate the details unless you, you zoom in on it. And you said originally it was kind of slow that first year sales for. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think um, I think I launched in June of 2018. And I think. By the end of 2019, I think I had sold 12 watches. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Um, and so that was great at the time. It was just me and uh, Arthur. Oh, I can't believe I forgot Arthur before. Uh, Arthur's been with me since the beginning. Uh, he's a master hand engraver. Uh, he has his own watch brand. Uh, he works for me part-time and works for his brand himself. How do you Incredible person. Last name? Arthur Achmave. Arthur Achmave. Yeah, he's phenomenal. Yeah, he's, I, I can't Arthur. believe I didn't mention him before. Um, he's, he's definitely one of the best engravers in the world. I think it's fair oh, to say. Oh, yeah. 
No, he just did a great lecture with the Horological Society in New York on horological engraving. Fantastic person, really, really blessed I get to work with him. Um, yes, yeah, so it was just you, him and I. Yeah. yeah, that's that was the beginning. the The movements came kind of already prepared from. Long yeah, exactly. Long. We uh we would make like a cereal plate. We'd like had these beautiful gold cereal plates where Arthur would hand engrave the numerals, and he did the anglage on it. Um, and then, you know, I would do the dials, Arthur would do the hands, um, and then, then we brought on a machinist and we we're still in my garage. Uh, and, uh, then COVID hit and everyone was moving home when COVID hit and I did the exact opposite. I was like, I got to get out of here. Like my whole family's home. Uh, so that's when I yeah. got my first workshop uh outside of the the garage yeah in 2020 yeah yeah that's great and you uh recently moved to a much larger and extremely impressive workshop that was uh the summer 2023 last summer yes yeah yeah uh, so it's a 7300 square foot workshop um yeah it's really big and beautiful thank god yeah i've Really was extremely impressed when I toured it in November. Uh, was just blown away by the team and the machinery, um, which we touched on before. But do you have a favorite machine among your collection? Yeah, I mean, I guess these days there's um, there's a Rose Engine machine we have uh, that was made in 1927. And it was sold to this company called J Fountain and Sons, which had been in business since 1822. And um, there's this guy, Leonard Tidy, who was like the main employee there. And he worked on this machine from 1927 to 1977. And then Jay, when he retired, J Fountain and Sons closed the business and they gave Leonard Tidy this uh, beautiful Rose Engine machine that he had basically was the only one that had worked on it for 50 years. And then he sold it to a chronometer maker um, who lived in Santa Barbara in 1981. And he sold it in exchange for a trip to California. Uh, <laughs> and um, and that, awesome. yeah, then he had it for from 1981 until uh, this year when he sold it to me. So it's a two owner machine. Very uh, special. Made in Great Britain has attachments for it. I haven't seen anywhere else. Um, almost never like all my other engine turning machines. Uh, you never know the providence of them, where they came from, who owned them. It's just like a vintage watch. It's extremely rare to know who the original owner is. Um, so that's really special. The, the other Before, machine is uh go ahead, Tony. Sorry. No, continue with this thought. <laughs> I was just going to say the other machine is uh, one of our CNC machines. It's called a Kern, and they make the most accurate CNC machines on the planet. Um, and so that's so accurate and grave your name on the side of a hair. Like, uh, incredible machine. Have you tried to do that? No, we haven't. That <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't be that useful. Um, yeah. What was interesting uh, was Kern's kind of history with helping save the Swiss watch making industry itself, which is oh, yeah. familiar with. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, um, 
in the 90s, the Swiss watchmaking industry was uh, trying to pick up the pieces after the quartz crisis. And Kern had a, a job shop, so they were making a lot of components for the Swiss industry. And when they recovered enough, then they started buying Kerns from the company. We started making them for the industry. So that company, German based, what really helped uh, revive Swiss watchmaking. Um, yeah. And they have a U.S. distributor and really great people and make really incredible machines. And we're getting a, a million dollar current in soon, which will really revolutionize things for us. That'll go down to half a micron, he said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, basically i wanted to talk about you know it's good it's kind of hopefully people can follow along at home we're jumping around but uh wanted to talk about how many models of the infinity series you ended up making uh across how many years what was kind of the breakdown generally in different case types you evolved the series as it went along yeah great questions so we started off you know, I, I purchased the cases, I think, in 2017, and the trend then was still, like, uh, larger. So the first Infinity Series cases were 42 millimeters. Um, and uh, that started shifting right around that time. So uh, the next order of cases that I did were 40 millimeter. Um, How many then, 42? Yeah, I think just six. I think four rose gold, one yellow gold, one white gold. Maybe there's a platinum as well. Maybe not. I, I don't remember off the top of my head. That's um, Yeah. Um, and then then a, a big turning point was when I did um collaboration with uh, Asher and Gabe at Collective Horology. We did their first... Like, they had... A collaboration with Zenith, that was their C01, and then um, then we were the first P, which is sort of like an in-between series. And uh, we made 10 meteorite dialed watches. So this was meteorite with guilloche on top of it. Um, and that was uh, a big hit. Like, I sold 10 of those, but on the coattails of that, uh, I think I made another 30, 40 sales. That's awesome. Yeah, so that's that's where it kind of went from like uh a really intense side hustle to uh uh like this is, this is it. This is my, yeah, 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 this is a job. Yeah. When did you leave being principal? Uh so around that time I started I went part-time. Um and then I left the school completely um in 2022 so not that long ago but yeah, i was pretty part-time at that point uh i really loved being at the school so it was it wasn't easy to leave um i'd been with the school since the beginning of the school what's and, the name uh, of it it's uh it was called ccla uh Clubhouse time of los angeles um that's awesome yeah. and it's still they're surviving without you there uh it's changed it's got a different name now different leadership um yeah, big changeover when I left. Uh, one of the founders left too. It was, yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Can, can you talk about the um, just double clicking on the dial of the Infinity series a little bit more? I know kind of 
basket weaving is already one of the more difficult guilloche patterns to to execute and then you kind of do a basket weave within a basket weave so if you could just talk about that for maybe a little bit more yeah sure so uh so if you look at Breguet, like real abraham louis Breguet, um his watches had a basket weave on it and i i fell in love with that pattern and so did george daniels and so did roger smith it's very technically difficult to do uh, to get really sharp baskets is not easy. Um, so just being able to produce a really nice basket weave took years, years of work to do. And, and I knew if I launched a series, I needed to do something like extraordinary. Like if I just did a basket weave there, like that, that wasn't going to like catch the attention. Uh, and it wasn't going to push myself either. So I I came up with this concept of doing a basket weave and then uh, within every other basket would be four smaller baskets. So I thought of the concept and then I had to figure out the technology with these straight line machines, these guilloche machines to be able to pull it off. And the way I figured out how to do it is the small baskets. I'm essentially doing those lines one at a time. Whereas the big baskets, it's making a, a big zigzag. So it's an uninterrupted cut from the, the bottom to the top. But every little basket, I'm just doing tiny little cuts to make each one of those baskets. So it turns it into, you know, from hundreds of operations to thousands of operations uh, to do that in very uh, high margin of error. And um, yeah. Yeah, very very challenging. How and if you make a mistake, it's shot as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of demands perfection, right? Exactly. Yeah, one slip and it's it's toast. Um, and you'll see little imperfections. And I always like to tell this to people: there's a difference between imperfections and mistakes. Imperfections are how you know it's handmade. Mistakes are when it's like, "Oops, I wasn't <laughs> supposed to do that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of reminds me of uh, the Persian carpets. Uh, I studied Persian for four years at Georgetown, Farsi, and uh, uh, spent a lot of time on studying the history, culture, religion, etc. And uh, the carpet, you know, weavers would intentionally put in a mistake, actually, because if it was perfect, it would be an affront to God. So, I oh wow. <laughs> joke like even if the watch is near new old stock or something i'm selling you know you almost don't want it perfect because it would be an affront to god if it was totally 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 perfect for a vintage watch uh, wait eric are you saying that you intentionally scratch your watches no thankfully <laughs> someone else usually has done that before it touches my hands but uh right you you, you kind of want to see that if it's too perfect there's a problem uh, right too the, good to be uh, true so you you made a hundred total of the Infinity series, correct? Yeah. So after, uh, eventually, we started making our own cases completely, and we made titanium cases, and then we went and made tantalum cases. Um, when was that kind of in the series? Was that like Watch Thirty, if you will? Uh. Yeah, I think 
our first in-house cases were, um, yeah, right around there. Cause it was, I think it was like serial number 23, um, was the first titanium one, but we'd already done 10 meteorite. Tw- yeah. Yeah. So yeah, right around there in the thirties. And then, um, in our own steel cases. And then we did the Tantum limited edition in uh the end of 2021 and we delivered those in 22 and those were we made 26 of the tantalum limited edition and we had some tantalum watches before that but the tantalum edition was special because we actually made the chapter rings um out of tantalum which no one has ever done before working with tantalum is awful and we actually did guilloche and tantalum on those chapter rings um, so those watches are very special. Um, yeah. Do you think you'll ever try to do that? You're doing the resurgence in Tantalum, but we are, yeah, yeah. But no, none of the dial features are in Tantalum. Uh, yeah. That's something uh, that doesn't sound very no. appealing to me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the dial, the dials for the Infinity series, were they made of brass? No, uh, silver. Okay, cool. Silver, all silver. Other than yes. that, Antolin chapter ring. Yeah, it's either silver or some exotic crystallized titanium or meteorite or um, gold. Yeah, that's great. And uh, our friend Gabe Benador uh, has one. Could you tell us a little bit about his watch? He's talked about it in past episodes. Oh yeah. So he was the one of the first people to get uh, one of our in-house cases, a titanium case, and those were thirty-nine. So we dropped down from 40 to 39 when we started doing our own in-house cases because, once again, trends were getting smaller. Uh, So Gabe's watch, um, his chapter ring is steel. And we Archer hand-engraved cursive Hebrew onto it. Then we heat-treated the whole thing. We hand-blued the whole thing. And then we grained off the top surface. So the... The numerals themselves are flame blued, but the rest of the chapter ring uh, is a steel color. Uh, so that was super special. It came out awesome. And then um, on the side of his case, Arthur engraved um, uh, IDF paratrooper wings. Uh, so it's a very sentimental uh, piece for him. One of the my favorite watches that we've made. Um, I, I really. I really love and appreciate when people personalize their watch because that tells me they're keeping it uh, forever. And uh, that makes me care about the watch a lot more. Um, And I'm just, I'm so much more invested in the project when I hear that uh, and when I'm able to do that. Yeah. It is a super cool watch. Uh, You kind of brought up a point there. How does it make you feel when um, you see Shapiro's come up at auction? Because it's happened (laughs) at least a couple of times now. Yeah. Yeah. Um uh you know my my watch is anyone can do anything they want. It's their property. Um but on me on my side as the craftsman like um when I make a watch for someone, I'm making it for them. You know, I I've never made a watch and just had it sitting around and it it goes off to a, a stranger. Like when I make a watch, I'm thinking of the person I'm making it for. Um, and so it, it does always bother me a little bit when, um, uh, they get sold, 
but I also understand that people's taste change or whatever it is. Um, Financial circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, but I, I can answer it like this. I don't think people would be as interested in me and my watches if I didn't care as much as I did. So you want me to be upset when uh, a watch gets sold. Like that, that means I actually care about what I'm doing. It's not just a, a dollar sign. We make X amount of watches a year. I don't care who the owners are. Um, yeah, we're not a, we're not a big company. You know, we don't make watches millions of them. It's, it's made for clients. Do you want to transition to talking about the uh, resurgence for a few minutes? Is that okay, Eric? No, I just wanted to wrap up my point because the funny thing was, Josh, you and I connected because I got a JN Shapiro for sale. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, we hadn't even met. I had already sold the watch. The client yeah. uh, who had it had two and he said he wanted to sell one. So he offered it to me. I said, why not? Like, I like his work. I admire him from afar. Uh, yeah. I mentioned it even on the podcast and then put it up and sold it. And uh, you were happy with how it all went, which you conveyed to me. We connected by text. And the client told me that he told you it was for sale. <laughs> he was going to put it for sale and that he got your blessing and permission. But he had not. It was uh, he didn't. He he kind of told a, a lie there, and uh, but we put it up there. It did well, uh, and that who would have thought we would become uh, good friends as a result of all that? Uh, we got to turn lemons into lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that's my motto as well. Uh, but go ahead, Tony, about the resurgence. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to sort of talk talk about it a little bit more. Obviously, uh, we've we've talked about how cool of a project is and bringing back American watchmaking and all of that. Uh, I think. When I was reading about it, learning about it a little bit on our Hoodie Key article and wherever else, I think your your intent on sourcing jewels and then hairsprings and like the lengths you went to to find uh, American suppliers for those, like kind of just illustrates your commitment to the project. So maybe maybe just start by talking about the process of sourcing those two components in particular, since that's like the hang up often for for American made. Oh yeah, I mean. It- and I mean, it's even more than that. Like, uh, like, uh, to make, uh, wheels, pinions, all the guts of a watch is also a huge hang up. Those parts are extremely difficult, extremely labor intensive. Um, so that, that's like the first giant hurdle. Uh, the, the second hurdle, yeah, is hair springs, jewels, mainspring. Um, so jewels is a really cool story. Um, the really only watch jewels come from Switzerland and China and, um, uh, used to be just Switzerland, even the United States didn't really have, even in the heyday of American watchmaking, they weren't really making their own jewels just on a tiny, tiny scale. Uh, so all the big brands, Hamilton, Waltham, Elgin, were getting their jewels from Switzerland. Um, when world war two hit, uh, there was a huge concern that Switzerland was surrounded uh, that we wouldn't be able to get jewels and jewels were needed, not just for timekeeping instruments, but for um, aircraft instruments, uh, measurement devices, all sorts of things. Like it was a huge national crisis. Um, 
So Hamilton, Waltham, Elgin, uh, Levin here in Southern California all started making jewels. Uh, and uh, the war ended and before any of those jewels were actually ever used. Uh, fast forward a few years, Bolova and the Defense Department got together and made a plant in North Dakota to manufacture jewels and stockpile them in case uh, something broke out in the Cold War and Switzerland was ever cut off. Uh, so this company, Microlap and Bolova, made jewels uh, for many years. Bolova went out of business in the United States in 1977. Uh, Microlap kept going, making jewels until the stockpile was essentially full in the 80s. Uh, all the jewels they would need, millions of jewels in stockpile. And uh, then the U.S. government gave uh, this business to this town in North Dakota. Um, and they've continued on making jewels for medical and aerospace ever since in the United States. So when I contacted them, they hadn't actually made jewels for watches in, you know, 50 years. Uh, and so I worked with them for years and we finally worked out a deal, um, and received delivery of these extremely accurate, wonderful American made watch jewels. And I kind of shared that with <coughs> on Instagram and everyone. Uh, so that was that's really cool. That makes when me was, really, really happy. When did you receive those? Uh, not too long ago. Uh, maybe six months ago. Um, yeah, it was a it was a big process. It was um, different tolerances for watches that are needed for medical devices. Uh, much higher tolerances, smaller diameters for watches than these medical devices. So it wasn't a small undertaking. Uh, yeah. And then Tony answer your question, hairspring wire. Um, so we contracted precision engineering, which is Moser's company. And, uh, Moser's a great company. They're one of the few, uh, Swiss companies that are actually Swiss made. Um, and, um, uh, so we were getting flat hair springs from them and then we were overcoiling and vibrating them ourselves, which is about 50% of the work. In the meantime, um, I found a, a company in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, that was able to, um, draw hairspring wire for us using Elinvar wire, which is what Hamilton used. And, um, the, the minimum order for that was 28, uh, um, enough hair. It was 28,000 feet Wait, of hairspring. It wire. just cut out there a second. Yeah, and enough the to make order? 60, 70,000 springs. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. I ordered <laughs> so you, it. It, it sounds like it would have been really expensive, but it actually wasn't that expensive. Did, and, and you ordered um, it. Uh, it was about tw- it, it was about twelve hundred dollars for did you take twenty eight thousand feet of oh, hairspring wire? Go ahead. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> A right. bargain for sure. Right. If anyone if anyone needs any hairspring wire, Josh can sell you some. Uh, for 900 oh that was also around the same uh, time um, how much uh 
getting it drawn is like a huge step. Uh, Then after that is a really hard step. We have to coil it and heat treat it. Um, And that's what we need to do next. Once we get that down, uh, then we'll have completely US made uh, uh, hair springs once again. So that'll be really cool. And that hairspring is only good for our balance wheel. Like the hairspring wire is drawn to the size that you need uh, uh, for that balance. Um, Yeah. That's great. Tell us about your movement, which... uh is extremely interesting because you actually have three different bridge layouts that people can customize, you know, not that you didn't make enough work for yourself creating an in-house movement. Yeah. (laughs) Then I was shocked when you're like, you actually have three different choices of bridge layouts. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the the truth is uh, the the hardest parts to make in in a watch are the parts you don't see. Um, Bridges and plates are big. They're, they're big components. Um, and not always is the case, but bigger is usually easier. So we already put in all the hard work to make all the, the, the small components, the components you don't see. Um, so it wasn't that much more difficult uh, to do different bridge layouts. And we put all this work into making this movement. I wanted more designs to play around. So I designed two uh, different movement layouts. And one of my watchmakers, Michael Rose, uh, designed one layout himself because he was really passionate about that. Um, So it's just something really uh, fun we can offer customers that there are these different choices for layouts. And, um, uh, you know, Michael's layout, we call it the Cubist, is a lot more challenging to do. It has a lot more internal angles uh, 14 internal angles. Um, but, um, it's just something really cool and special we can offer. There's a company called Tushan that would offer two different movement versions. And I loved that. Um, they're a company from the 1920s and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Really glad we could do it. And the, uh, the layout in exactly. the prototype sort of original. Yeah, it's inspired by that. Kind we, of that too shot. We kind of modified a lot from there, but uh, I've always uh, loved great. that layout. And I think it shows a lot of motion and, um, yeah, just, just love it. Love how it turned out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Charlie Dunn nicknamed that one the motion. Uh the other is yeah. the cubist and the finger bridges yeah the third version is kind of a classic half plate uh and we call that, we call that the classic kind of val you know valid yeah. finger bridges etc uh so you got the classic the motion and the cubist um uh the the, the are, prototype are you going to yeah, uh keep a resurgence in the shapiro family collection um, yeah I don't really uh, yeah, wear it very often because that's, um, that's great. You know, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, right. It's too valuable. <laughs> it's too important. Thirty-eight, um, yeah. and it's thirty-nine millimeters with nineteen millimeters between the lugs for the research. Thirty-eight, yeah. 
absolutely spectacular watch. Um, so we, not that this is like an advertorial or anything, but I did want to just give a little preview to something fun that we've uh, cooked up, which is yeah. our first kind of win vintage collaboration watch, uh, which I'm so excited to work with you. Uh, it's a resurgence uh, in 10 pieces with a Corsa Guilloche dial, but inspired by some of the vintage dials from the 1950s that we love. Uh, Charlie Dunn, Tony Trena, etc., with uh, kind of a distinctive 12 that we find on the Rolex Patalone reference 8171. So uh, we're very excited to announce something special we're doing together, which is a Win Vintage JN Shapiro Resurgence watch, uh, limited to 10 pieces only, um, inspired by a vintage rolex and movado dials made by stern frere also patek philippe dials with this kind of interesting distinct 12 that we see on the rolex patalone complete calendar with moon phase reference 8171 in steel in some rolex precision time only models on some patek philippe and movado time only models really cool uh approach for people that love vintage watches like me and people that also love uh josh shapiro and excited about what he's doing so i uh i'm excited to have placed an order i've got another client who's placed an order uh you can kind of pick any case metal you like um but it's got that distinctive dial and the distinctive leaf hands which are exclusive to this model or feu hands as they say in french um so, uh, yeah, very, very excited about working with Josh on this. The first uh, watch that'll say win vintage on it uh, on the movement. I thought it was cool how you kind of like to keep the cases clean. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you'd rather engrave it on the movement plates, right? Exactly. Yeah. No, I think this is going to be a very special collaboration. It's it's really cool. I, I love the kind of the crossing of vintage and uh, new and it's, it's a really cool aesthetic um, from some really special watches from the fifties. It's yeah, it's, it's very exciting. Uh, I can't wait to, to get mine whenever that day comes and you start uh, getting through your order book. But uh, tell us, I mean, one interesting thing is how you produce the case before we go too crazy, but you, Guilloche the mid case and then affix the lugs. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so if you think of the the middle of a case, uh, usually either the lugs are just part of it; they're all machined together, or they're uh, soldered on, which is like a, a type of welding. Um, what we do is we have like a complete circle, and we guilloche the the outside of it. And then afterwards, we mill holes and um, put the lugs in and hold them in with screws. And that enables us to have the guilloche all the way around. Um, we wouldn't be able to do that if there were integral lugs there. And if we solder them, uh, the soldering process and polishing that out would mess up the guilloche. So we had to kind of figure out a way to hold the lugs in extremely well uh, and waterproof. 
um, in a way that uh, wouldn't mess up the guillotine in any way. And uh, so we figured that out. And there's some other makers that do it that way, like a longa zone and BNF. Um, but we kind of figured out our own system for ours. And it's uh, one of my favorite aspects of the watch. It's super, it's super impressive. I'm a bit of a case nut and I liked the infinity, but when I saw the resurgence prototype on your wrist, to me, it was like 10 times as good. Just the sizing, the case construction, the lugs. uh, And that was what made me basically say it was one of my all time. It's one of my all time favorite time only watches regardless wow. of air and people know I'm a vintage nut at heart, but uh, <laughs> what you've done is something novel and very interesting. Um, the last thing I, I want to appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. The last thing before we close, I wanted to talk about the discord you've created for watchmakers uh, and how impressive I find it that you're kind of guiding and kind of helping so many different watchmakers across the country, whether they're launching their own companies or trying to figure out where to go or additional training. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So it's actually um, my friend, Nick Harris that started it. Um, I'm very active in it and uh, talk to a lot of people through it, but uh, he owns a company called Orion watches uh, and he started this group and it's got a few hundred watchmakers in it uh, from all around the world. And it's uh, uh, just a really nice way to share information and um, talk about things that are going on in the industry and share knowledge and equipment. And uh, I think that's, that's really important uh, that that dialogue needs to be happening. And um, uh, there's a lot of, issues on the the watchmaker side uh in this world like there's a huge shortage of watchmakers and the big brands are pushing harder and harder uh uh, to create basically service technicians and service robots and a lot of what makes watchmaking special especially in the training is uh getting cut out of programs um so we all love watches and we all want them serviced but at the same time uh we don't want to learn lose uh the the skills and the the hand aspects of the craft that make it so special so that's one of the things that this discord's really good about and um keeping watchmaker knowledge and awareness very high it's really impressive uh also even like sourcing parts or things like that. It's a, just a very collaborative, cooperative spirit. That's very cool that I've seen uh, occur through that Discord group. Um, yeah. Well, I think with that, it's been a remarkable hour uh, talking with, I think, one of the leading luminaries in watchmaking today, certainly in the United States, but also in the world. Thank you so much for having us, you know, allowing us yeah. to speak with you an hour josh thank you so much eric thank you tony this was great uh really appreciate it thank you take care